All right. So, um, good morning. Everybody all right? Get, get, uh, get a little less sleep last night? How many of you didn't know until this morning when the alarm went off and you were like, it feels like it's not what it says it is? That was me. Went to bed at the normal time. Woke up at a completely different time. All right. Um, uh, with the time I have left, I'm going to build off what we did last week. Uh, we've, been in Acts, we've been going through the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 5. Um, last week we talked about atonement, and um, I, I do my best to sort of peel away sort of the layers of culture for the last, you know, 2,000 years or so that get piled upon the, the lenses that you've been given to look at different things. Um, specifically, last week we've been looking at, at the atonement. What does it mean that Jesus came? And, and I pointed out all the different ways in the scriptures that people have understood this. Um, for the Jews, it was one thing. For the Gentiles, it meant another thing. Sometimes Paul points it out as like, for, for some, it's, a, it's this temple sacrifice. And for, for others, it's this uh, a ransom, a purchasing of a slave and setting them free uh, or making them an equal in the family. Um, all kinds of ways in which the cross um, sort of enters into our world. And that's sort of what I want to spend some time on this morning, um, viewing that. Uh, what does the cross mean? What does atonement mean? I sort of pulled this word apart as well. Atonement is a word that was invented by William Tyndale, um, trying to find a way to explain um, what exactly happens on the cross. Um, and this is a big question for a lot of modern people today, a lot of people deconstructing faith, a lot of people rethinking things, um, um, sort of... Um, peeling back the layers of, of maybe some theology that you may have inherited from maybe the medieval period, um, theologians of those days, or whatever tradition you came from. Um, it's, it's kind of, we're, we're kind of in a time where everyone is, is um, sort of uh, what uh, some theologians, like uh, a theologian Phyllis Tickle, she would call, she would call um, a rummage sale, where you go through your faith and you kind of throw out the things that no longer fit, that you no longer use, that no longer make sense in the construct you currently have. Atonement oftentimes becomes one of these things. Um, in, in, in trying to find a way to explain um, the unity that happens on the cross between God and humanity, um, William Tyndale, the great translator, he... he he came up with this word, this phrase, at one minute, and he puts this together. It's where we get our word atonement. Uh, this is a word of his, uh, from his own mind, from his own making. Um, and it sort of addresses all of the different ways that the cross um, connects us to God. And we've been going through a few of these. If you weren't here last week, go back and listen to that. Because today I'm sort of going to build off, okay, now that we sort of have a lens of, okay, how we, how we can view what happens on the cross, how do we respond to this? And the problem is that a lot of us have been given an atonement theory that sort of is about us going to God where, from where we are. Um, we tend to think of ourselves as, okay, if I'm separated from God, the cross is sort of like, sometimes it's described as this bridge, I guess, that brings us, makes a way for us to go to God. Um, the reason a lot of us think like this is because our theology is very individualistic these days. In the ancient world, it was not. In the first century, uh, theology was done in community, and it was about a people that came together as the body of Christ. Um, when Paul, for instance, writes all of his letters, when he tells you, uh, be kind, be patient, be gentle, he's not telling these individuals, be kind, patient, and gentle, although those are good things to be. He's telling communities, this is what you should be as a community. When people look at your community, you should be gracious. They should see you as a forgiving community. Um, and so oftentimes when we think about, okay, so the cross allows me to go to God, it becomes very personal. And when it's personal, it just becomes a belief system. It just becomes something that you, um, 
The only response is to say, okay, I can go to God through Christ. But the story of the scriptures from beginning to end is actually different. It is God moving into our midst, tabernacling with us. The word tabernacling is used constantly um, as we are the place where God is trying to dwell. So the ancient idea, you know, you even have the picture of the vision of Jacob's ladder. He falls asleep and he has this vision of, of a giant ladder, like a, like a ziggurat going up into the sky. And instead of him going up to God, God is coming down. Um, and the message of the prophets is one day it will be as God intends for it to be God living amongst his people. Um, and so it's almost like God is moving towards us. So the cross for the ancient people was this picture of it's the place where God joins us where we are. That's what we addressed last week. And the problem is if, if, sort of, if we are the ones that are climbing towards God, then all that is needed is like a belief. Like I agree with this statement that the cross saves. I agree and now I am saved. Um, and so basically it becomes a set of like, okay, Christianity basically becomes, um, I believe that the cross is the way to Jesus. And so for now, the rest of my life, I'm just going to try to be really good and I'm going to try to have morality um, and do good things and live an ethical Christian life until the day that I die. And then um, God and I will be joined. And then uh, it, it's all very much about you, but it literally addresses nothing in this world today. It addresses nothing. It doesn't fix anything. It doesn't make anyone whole. Um, we kind of encourage people then in this sort of structure. We tell people, well, make sure you're loving people. Make sure you're helping other people and taking care of them. Why? Because the Bible says to. But ultimately, that's not really in that construct. That's not the, the point of Jesus. The point of, the, of Jesus becomes individual salvation, but nothing is ever fixed. And God has abandoned the creation that he loved and cared for. Um, I would push back against this idea. I don't think this is what is happening in the scriptures, even a little bit. I don't think this is how the ancient people understood this. Uh, so today we're going to talk about their, their understanding of the cross was a response. The cross, if God moved into their midst, if the cross is um, God fully displaying himself to them and entering into their suffering, um, entering into their death, um, and then leading them out of it in the resurrection, becoming their king, um, that demands a response. If it's just for later, there is no response. It's just believe, okay? Now, uh, from the first to the third century, there was this group of people um, that believed that they, they sort of, um, uh, I would say, culturally appropriated some of the teachings of Christianity, and they pulled them out of, of their uh, context, and they changed the message um, to say that basically there's this secret knowledge. This would, their whole idea is the secret knowledge. Um, this should be a meme, by the way. Um, uh, that there's this secret knowledge that um, I know something that nobody else knows, like a YouTube video, right? Like, I'm going to reveal it to you now. Um, that's what most of them are now. Um, here's some secret information. And if you know this information, they would say, when you die, you will be saved. Um, your soul will enter into the place of, of God or the gods, depending on which sort of sect of, of Gnosticism uh, is telling the story. And so the story becomes, I have a secret knowledge that I have found. And the whole point of existence becomes to find the secret knowledge. Your life from birth till death is, um, the point of this game is to find the secret knowledge. And if you find the secret knowledge and you learn it and you believe it, then God will save you. And this is the secret thing, but it has, it's all a secret. And so their role is to go around and tell the secret knowledge. Um, so, and so they, they co-opted parts of, of the culturally appropriated different pieces of 
of Christian lingo. Um, and in the, in the second century, they started writing these gospels, the Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Mary, Gospel of Peter. You've heard of these, <laughs> any Dan Brown fans? Um, uh, and, and so they, they sort of um, write their own sort of gospels using the message of Christianity. It was a syncretistic religion. They did this with a lot of religions. Um, and the word, the Greek word for, for knowledge is this word gnosis or gnosis. Um, and so they were called the Gnostics. Um, and so those are called the Gnostic Gospels. Um, and believe it or not, they were very influential. And some of this stuck around. And there's a lot of people today who still describe Christianity as it's a set of beliefs that if you believe them, God will save you when you die. If you just hold, if you just hold them in your mind and that's it. But the early Christians understood the cross as God joined us. God is entering into our world through the incarnation, and it demands a response. It demands um, that we now order our lives and our communities around this thing. So the response to Christianity was not, I, I, I just simply have an idea that I hold to. It's not mental ascension. It was faith. Faith in the ancient world is this Greek word pistis, which, which is much more uh, better translated as allegiance. It was when you believe that, that a king is right and that a king's way is right and that this king can really bring peace and goodness to the world and make things whole again, you put your allegiance in this king and you live by their ways. So it was this ordering of your life around um, a king. And the person that the early Christians were ordering their life around was King Jesus. Um, and so... You have many, many different ways that, that this affected their lives. It was not just, um, it's something that I believe and then I'm going to try to be really good, but when I die, I'm going to get a reward. It was this, um, today, now that Jesus is resurrected, the, the world is different than it was before. We now know who is king. We now know what we are here for. Um, Adam and Eve are now reborn through Christ, and in his church, we will tell the story of God, and we will order our lives. We will undisciple ourselves from the way of the Roman Empire, uh, and we will now order our lives around King Jesus and the teachings of King Jesus. Um, and so if you look at verse 20 of Acts chapter 5, where we've been studying, there's this incident where uh, the, the apostles, Peter and John, are arrested, and they're taken to prison. Uh, they are eventually... Um, uh, in the middle of the night, there's, uh, the Sanhedrin is meeting, and there's this mysterious figure, this angel of the Lord, who shows up, who unlocks the doors of the jail cell, and lets them out, and, he, and there's this exchange where he says, go and stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. Now, if you read this in the Greek, um, when it talks about this new life, the regular word for life is bio. Um, it just means alive. The word that is used here is this word zoe, which means, uh, zoe is meaningful living. It is, it is not um, just, um, I'm going to let you out and you're going to live. You're not going to be killed. You're going to be alive. No, I, I'm, I'm letting you out and I want you to go stand in the midst of, of the temple square. The people who, who, uh, who, who threw you in prison, they own all of this. And I want you to stand right in the midst of their work and I want you to proclaim and teach the people about this meaningful life. It's not just staying alive. It's something very, very different. It's about meaning making. So this meaningful life that they lived was a specific way of ordering and orientating their lives around the things of Christ. It was not a belief system that they held to. It was a life that they lived because of a belief that they had about King Jesus. 
Um, and so the life of the Christian is, uh, and this, this is the word we're going to be using a lot. I've used it a lot in the last year. This word is becoming sort of the central piece of our vision statement for this church as we are, as elders, gathering regularly and rewriting our vision and mission statements. Who do we as see ourselves as now? Where, where is this church heading? Um, who are we as a people? And so it's, it's going to have a lot to do with this particular word, which is Christoformity. And I've been using this word, and I get a lot of questions about this word. It's an interesting word, and I think it's really important. Christoformity, um, it can be defined as this, um, being formed by and participating in, and that's huge, uh, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the reign of Christ. Christ is not this ethereal sort of um, new age idea that we apply to religious leaders. Christ is an ancient Jewish idea. It specifically means um, the Davidic king. It means the ruler of Israel and therefore the world. It is king. King Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. Um, and so Christoformity means that you become a people. Not, not necessarily like as individuals, yes, but that we're becoming a people who are formed by the, uh, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the reign of Christ. Um, and here's the thing. Christianity, like I've been explaining, is not so much a set of beliefs as it is a way of living. Most people's ethics are centered around bio, not zoe. It's centered around just staying alive for as long as possible. Um, and we do everything we can to just simply stay alive. Um, and the role that Christ plays in their lives is, is very simplistic. Um, most Christians, especially in evangelical America, they go to a church, they've already been fully discipled by the culture and the nation and the empire in which they live. Um, they live for the same things as their neighbor. They, they're guided by the same things as their neighbor. They go to school for the same reasons their neighbors go to school for. And they, they sort of see everything the exact same way. And so then they go to a church um, to hear a message of, of, um, of usually, usually a white man standing up there telling them, um, here's how the Bible is relevant to your life. Whatever it is that you do, the Bible is relevant to it. Um, do you like to do business? Here's how the Bible is relevant to business. Do you like to create art? Here's how the Bible is relevant to art. Are you a dreamer? Here's how the Bible is relevant to your dreams. Do you want to influence people and have leadership? Here's how the Bible is relevant to influence and leadership. But what we are doing is we are taking the teachings of Jesus and we're sort of cutting them all up and splicing them up and slipping them into our lives wherever they can fit. Um, and this is because it's not an orientation of life. It is a belief system. Uh, but for the early church, life was about meaning-making. Christ became the thing that they put themselves into. It wasn't that the, meat, the teachings of Christ were put into their lives. They put their lives into the teachings of Christ. They formed their lives around the things of Christ. The message of Jesus was not, uh, here's some good and smart ways to handle your money. Because everyone should be good with their money. Everyone should stay out of debt. You should owe no man anything but the debt of love. That's the Apostle Paul. And we're taking Paul and we're making him a 21st century American capitalist in our system and saying, here's what the Bible says to your system. The Bible's not speaking to your system. It's really not. The Bible uh, is, um, the, the question that the Bible is asking you is, is, how are you using your money to participate in the life, the death, the resurrection, and the reign of Christ in this world? Whatever money passes through your hand, how are you leveraging that to establish the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Bob or, 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 or whoever you are? Not fitting the kingdom. in Like, the money is not about you. None of it's yours anyways. Um, 
The Bible, uh, it, it, it's not, shouldn't be used. It's not like, here's what the Bible says about having sex. Here's a bunch of rules. Follow these rules. Um, that's not what it is. The Bible is asking you, how are you using your physical interactions and the status and the office of marriage to tell the story of God through faithfulness, through oneness, forgiveness, through fruit bearing and having children, um, embracing the brokenness of others and dying to yourselves and your disciple and, and your desires. Because your marriage is owned by the community and it is here to encourage us and to tell the story of God. That's why it was public. That's why you invited us to it. And that's why we are looking to you to forgive, to stay faithful, um, and to pour yourself out for the other person. And so the message of Christianity is not, here's what the Bible says about having a good marriage. The Bible says, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, um, it's telling the story that your, your marriage is a link in the chain of the generations that God causes to come and to pass away to his glory. It is not your love that sustains your marriage. It is the marriage that sustains your love. That's... It is ordering your life around the things of Jesus, ordering all of it. Um, this is why okay, I love 1 Corinthians 4, 9. Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. He says, we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. That word spectacle is the Greek word uh, theatron. It's where we get a word for theater. It's, he's, he's saying, you, church, what you are doing, what you should be doing is performing a theatrical performance of the life of Christ. What did Christ do? Why are you not doing that? Who did Christ spend time with? Who are you spending time with in your community? Like, what are you doing? Why did you put this church here, in this neighborhood, in that place? What are you doing as a people? And we should be asking ourselves and poking and prodding ourselves at these questions constantly. Are we performing a theatrical performance of the life of Christ? Are we or are we not? Um, And so with all of this in mind, we go back to Acts chapter 5. There's something that happens at the end of Acts chapter 5 in verse 40 and 42, um, where they are arrested again for preaching the message of of Jesus again. And they stand before the tribunal, um, the Sanhedrin, and they're standing there and it says, they called the apostles in and had them flogged. That means they took a cat of nine tails. Uh, that's, that's what they called it. It's this Roman whip with glass and metal with nine leather straps. And they whipped them, flaying their skin and their flesh, and they bleed. And they flogged them. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had, they had been counted worthy of, the suffering, uh, of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news. That's the word euangelion. That is gospel. Here's a definition of the gospel. What is the gospel? The good news that Jesus is the Messiah, king, the Jewish Davidic king. Messiah is the Jewish word, uh, Jewish counterpart word of the Greek word um, Christ. So this is the proclamation of the gospel. Um, they are not your leaders, Jesus is. They are not your emperor, Jesus is. These are not your spiritual leaders. Jesus is. This is not your temple. Jesus is your temple. Okay? Um, And this is what they're doing. So they're flogged. They're literally whipped and their flesh torn open. And they come walking out of the Sanhedrin and they're rejoicing. Why are they rejoicing? This is something that Christians rarely talk about. The idea of participation in the suffering of Christ. That for the early Christians, this was a huge blessing in their minds. Which is crazy to me. It's like they walk out 
And they look at each other and they're bleeding and they're in pain. They're like, yeah, and they're like excited. Like, high five, I got whipped. You too, ow. And they're like, they're like walking out. Like they're celebrating the fact that they got flogged. Why? Why were they celebrating this? You know why? Because as this is happening, they're reminded that this is exactly what happened to Jesus. And in that moment, they are performing the theatrical performance of the Christ who was there, probably tied to that same exact pole being whipped in that same exact room by the same exact people. And so the Gospel of John is written long after the book of Acts, probably, probably 30 or 40 years later. Um, and John was one of these people who was whipped. And look how close his description is in the book of John to what happened to Jesus. Acts 5, they called, in, called, they called the apostles in and had them flogged. John 19, the, uh, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Um, what John saw was that he was participating in telling the story of Jesus. And we like to take everything and make it very spiritual. And saying, here's what this means. That you should be joyful in difficult times. No, 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 no. You should, be, you should be asking yourself at all times, is what I'm doing right now, is it happening because I participated in, in, in the life of Christ? And is it also a form of participation in the life of Christ? They would say yes. Which part of the life of Christ? Well, either his, his life, his teaching, the way he positioned himself and the people he gathered at his table and taught, or his, or his death. We'd call this cruciformity. So the first one, life, would be bioformity. Uh, uh, your, your death, his, his death would be cruciformity because God has revealed himself as cross-shaped, a God who pours himself out in suffering for those who are less than him. Um, and then anastasiformity, the Greek word for, for resurrection, form to the resurrection of Christ. They see things that are broken, people who need resurrection and healing, and they're bringing things to life which are dead and gone. However that looks in any part of their life. And then the Greek word for, 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 for kingdom is basi, so it's basiformity. It's, uh, um, aligning yourself with the, the kingdom of God as well. Now, um, for most modern Christians, the thing that is more, most important is words and thoughts. So if you go to somebody and you ask a question about a church, you ask about that church and you say, um, I would like to know whether or not that church is faithful to Christ. How would you find that out? Well, you'd probably email them and you'd ask the pastor some questions. If it's me, you'd email me and say, I've heard rumors about you and this and this and this. I'd be like, have no fear. Let me quell those rumors about this. And they ask you questions because they want words on a paper. Or you're going to go on the website, you're going to click around, you're going to look at the doctrinal statement. You want words on the paper. That's what we want. We want words. Just like the Jewish people wanted. The Torah. They wanted the words on the paper so they could learn about God and what God wanted. And they would study those Torah, those laws. I want words on the paper. Um, we want doctrinal statements. We want to read it. The most important thing is that they have it written down somewhere for me to see. And if I can read it and it's on the paper and I agree with it, then they are faithful to Jesus. And then I will be a part of that. And that's all we tend to look at. And we want to know things like, what denomination are they affiliated with? What's their theological leanings? Are they Calvinist, Armenian, Reformed, Anabaptist, Catholic, Episcopalian? Um, are they Presbyterian? Are they Methodist? Are they Episcopal? Like, we want to know these things because we want to know if they're faithful to Christ we want words on the page. But the early church understood something different. 
Jesus never commanded his disciples, hey, go and write books and make theological doctrinal statements. That is how they will know that you are my disciples. No, he specifically said, like, go and disciple people. Well, no, how, how will you know the disciple by their love one for another? How will they recognize us? Because of the way that we are telling the story of Christ in our midst. It's a life that is cruciform. As such, Paul's, the first churches were living commentaries on the, their master's story. A disciple is one who is disciplined, who has learned to live the life of Christ in their daily disciplines and actions. And this is how you know whether or not they are faithful. So for Paul, the most faithful interpretation of the Messiah's story was not a letter and it was not a doctrinal statement. It was not a document at all. It was a living body, one whose life unfolds step by step in ways analogous to the Messiah, Jesus. You could look at the way they were living and you could say, well, this is different. Where have I seen this? You've seen this in the life of Christ. That's why Paul, when people are questioning him and they want him to write something and argue for himself, he's like, I'm not going to argue. He says, let no one cause me trouble. I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. You can see I have taken part in the sufferings of Christ. It is physically and tangibly visible that they are followers of Jesus. This is how you know that they are faithful to Christ. It is an orientation of life. It is not words on a paper or words coming out of your mouth. Um, it was a living body. Uh, once in a while, I show you guys an icon, right? Um, I love icons, and I try to give you clues on how to interpret them and read them. They were intended, again, they were intended for um, illiterate Christians, which 90% of the early Christians were, 95% really were illiterate in the ancient world. Literacy is very new in human history. Um, and so they would stare at icons, and these icons had all kinds of symbols that would teach them about what it means, um, first off, about the story of Jesus, and then about what it means to follow Jesus. Um, and there's all kinds of clues that would, they would learn to interpret. Um, for instance, you have in the back, you have the jagged rocks, which means historical event. See, somebody was listening last week. All right. Now, um, the historical ways that Jesus lived and the things that he did, um, women sitting at his feet. So he's teaching women. The reason you would teach women is to lead, by the way. Um, so he's teaching these women. He's, he's healing people. He's bringing them forward. He's touching unclean and making them clean by his own touch um, because if God is present there with them. Then, then they find this holiness and this clean. They, they are entering into the temple in this way. Now, um, so I show you these things because this is how Christians learned, illiterate Christians learned about the things of God. So the church is a living icon of the cross in the same way. We are a living icon of the crucified Messiah that is intended to teach those who are illiterate about the things of God. They should be able to look at us as a community and say, um, I don't know who you are, I don't know what you believe, but I can gather a few things from the way that you exist. I can gather that you think God's love is for everybody. I can gather that everyone is welcome at the table. I can gather that you care about the downtrodden and the outcast. I can tell that you care about those who have been marginalized. I can tell that you care about justice and mercy, that you care about people um, on death row, that you value all life from conception until the moment um, that God takes them and so you don't support things like, like capital punishment and I can tell that you're there with prisoners in prison like caring for them. And they should be able to look at us and see that and gather and religiously and spiritually illiterate people should look at us and be able to, as, as a living icon, 
gather what we believe about Jesus. They shouldn't have to ask, what do you believe about Jesus? Well, read this paper, you'll get it. The paper doesn't fix anything. The body of Christ is the answer. What God is up to in the world is the church. That's what God is up to. If you've been wondering, if you've been sitting around praying and wondering, God, what are you doing in the world? You are what God is doing in the world. Us gathered together as the people of God. This should have some sway on the world around us. And so while the world searches for a narrative, you know, we're not the only ones telling a story. The world is telling a story as well. Here's how peace can come. You can do that. Here's how you can find happiness. Here's how you can find joy. And the influencers are doing their thing and the government leaders are doing their thing. And everyone's trying to tell you, this is the story. Here's the story you should live by. And if you find this, you know, you go to the mall, you have, the mall is basically a massive temple. Uh, you have the building, the structure, and it's all well uh, laid out. You have the priests there who are the clerks there who are there to absolve you of your sins. They look at you and they look at what you're wearing and say, oh, take these sins off and put these on. And then you're holding clear. And now we all agree. Like, we, yes, we approve of you. You are now approved. They are telling a story, and we are too. And these stories are not the same. They don't end in the same place. One of them ends in war and suffering and famine and destruction. And it is based on selfishness. One of them is based upon selfless, self-giving love that ends with a prince of peace sitting on a glorious throne at a massive banquet feast where everyone is sitting and being filled. These are two different stories. And so people ask me sometimes, so what should I do then? Um, look, at what, look at how Peter describes this. He says, always be prepared to give an answer for everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. He assumes you don't need to tell them anything. If you live this out, if you live the theatrical performance of the cross, they're going to ask you. They're going to notice it. Why are you pouring yourself out, allowing yourself to be broken in this way and that way for me? For your salvation. Why, though? Because this is the story, the cosmic story of God, of what God did for us. And so people ask me, like, what do I do then? How do I, is there some Thursday night thing where we're going to go feed the homeless and I can get in the van and go with you and we'll just pass out food? Or is there something I can go visit somebody in prison in your ministry? Is there some ministry I can just sign up for? Um, I'm free this night, this night, and this night. And we're again, we're going to come to the table and try to squeeze the message of God and the work of God into our lives that are already formed and already discipled by the empire and the cultures around us. And while I, while I love the heart behind the question, what can I do to help, I disagree with the premise that there is something that you can add to your already existing life to somehow make it more biblical and godly. The answer is that your life needs to be rebuilt, reordered, deconstructed entirely, taken apart, de-discipled from the ways of the world around you. And so right now, don't do anything. Right now, become spiritually disciplined. Spend some time in prayer and each day asking the Spirit, inviting the Spirit of God into, uh, to speak to you, to guide you through your day, to call attention to your eyes, the brokenness in the world around you, and how exactly the cross addresses it and enters into it, and the invitation there. And as you walk this, you will find it's a journey. It's not next week your life can be formed by Christ. It is a journey. Allow the Spirit to fill you and guide you. And as you choose your next decision, as you choose your next neighborhood in which to live, the next car in which you will drive, as you make your budget for next week or next month, as you choose your next job or plan your next phase of life, are you empty nesting and the kids moving out and now you have some spare bedrooms? Um, As you begin, you are constantly ordering your life. You're making adjustments. We're just asking that you would invite the Spirit of God into these adjustments that you're making. 
and stop centering them on yourself and the discipleship you have received from American culture. Someone whose life is formed around Christ doesn't choose their house based upon how much they can get for how little. Someone who is discipled by Christ doesn't choose their car based upon status that comes with it. Someone that is discipled by Christ does not choose their major or do their grad work based upon how much money it will produce. Those decisions are made by people who are discipled by the empire. Someone who is discipled by Christ invites the spirit to say, I'm making this decision. In what way can this make an impact for the kingdom of God? In the heaviest possible way. Why am I choosing to live here? Why am I making this decision right now? What would it look like if I made this decision? Would I have margin? Would I have more community that is different from me? How can I begin to slowly, over time, take part in my sanctification? To form my life around the things of Christ? You might ask, you hear about missionaries. I have a brother who's a missionary in Indonesia. He's got a wife. He's got five children. Um, There are times where they've all been sick for 10 days straight with malaria. Him and his wife and five little boys all under the age of 12. And you ask, why in the world would you go there to live with these people? He learned their language. He he invented an alphabet for them and taught them to read and write their own language and then translated the entire Bible into their language. That was the whole reason he went. You're like, so wait, you went into this place to to tell them about Jesus? Is this what we're doing? Like, is this why you're doing it? You're just going there, traveling halfway around the world to move onto their land and tell them about Jesus, about your religion? First off, no. That's not what we're doing. We're not going to tell people about Jesus. We are going to mimic the very nature of God. This is what God did. He was comfortable. He was in power. He had privilege. He had everything. And he didn't see it as something to be grasped, as Paul would put it. And he let it go to move in amongst these poor, oppressed Israelites, these nobody clan, and to get to know them and to suffer alongside of them so that he could lead them to salvation. And so what these missionaries are doing is they are mimicking the story. They are participating in the life of Christ, the very nature of Christ, acting out the part where God left his place of power and beauty and moved into the neighborhood and dwelt among them that eventually killed him. And yes, sometimes these missionaries are killed along with their families. And I try to remind that to people who look down on missions work. Um, the going is the work of participation in the life of Christ. The teaching and the ministering is the work of resurrection. The, the death, if there is death, and I know many missionaries who have lost children, spouses, friends. My brother has lost many. Um, if there is death, that is the participation in the cross of Christ. The performance is the work The action is the message. Soren Kierkegaard, um, about a decade ago, I got way into Kierkegaard, and I read him a lot more than I I have really in the last few years. But I remember this this part of his Christian discourses where he 
he has this person who writes and asks him, so should a person get a suitable job in order to exert virtuous influence? Should I, just, should I get a really good suitable job so I can exert a lot of influence, like rise up the ladder and so I can have influence over the world around me? He said, he said no, we must first seek the kingdom of God. Well, then should we give all our money away to feed the poor? No, we should first seek the kingdom of God. Well, then perhaps we should set out into the world and preach the message that people are to seek the kingdom of God. No. Chill out. Seek the kingdom of God. First, order your life around the kingdom of God. Don't try to make the Bible relevant to your life. That is backwards. Let your life fall apart and order it, rebuild it around the things of Jesus. That is meaningful life. That is a different story that we are telling collectively. Let's move into communion. Uh, Our communion servers, you guys can go ahead and take the elements and spread around the room. Communion is the first invitation into this. It's, It's the weekly ritual that we do because you come to the table, whatever you have, you bring it to the table. Whether you are holy, whether you are terrible, you bring it to the table and we all receive the same thing. Love, forgiveness, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you, for your healing, for your forgiveness, for your salvation. It's for you. And then we receive the invitation. Go and do likewise. Allow yourself, however you can, to be broken and poured out for the world around you. This is how salvation enters into the world. The invitation of communion is an invitation to at-one-ment, atonement. Atonement is not just something we believe. Atonement is what we do. It is the symbol of community. The cross is the symbol of community. We are an atoning people who follow an atoning God. Atoning as in at-oneing ourselves with others. Bringing peace to the world. Between people and between people and God. A community of atonement exists to create oneness between humanity and humanity and between humanity and God. And so this is the symbol of, of communion. And so I want to invite all of you to come to the table take communion with us, and then we're going to respond with one more song. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people, for everything that you have done for us. Guide us into this vision you have for us. Rise up people that can show us the areas that we are not a theatrical performance of your life, the ways that we are not participating in your life. Help us to repent fully of those things. Let us listen to each other. Let us see each other. Speak to each and every one of my brothers and sisters. And may we collectively have one ear to hear it. Thank you, Father. Amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.